It's February 1st, 2017, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and, of course, the startup scene. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa. We're going to kick off today's show featuring a couple of upcoming events. Ad Harrell will join us to tell us about the upcoming week-long workshop called How to Think Like an Entrepreneur. Then Mike Fricano from Iolani will tell us about the annual Ignite Innovation event. And then after the break, we'll talk about supercomputing, one of my favorite topics, one that I don't get to cover that much. <laughs> and, of course, we'll learn from uh, Philip Von D and Kevin Schneider how to use the supercomputer over at the University of Hawaii. Fantastic. What high-performance computing resource does the university have access to? What can it do and what can it do for you? You can join the conversation as well by calling in or sending us a tweet after the break. And, of course, first we want to welcome Ed Harrell, who is joining us uh, because he is going to give us a workshop, and it's called How to Think Like an Entrepreneur. It is an economist with more than 40 years of experience in managing private, public, and academic programs in the areas of privatization, technology commercialization, entrepreneurship, capital market development, and early-stage financing of technology companies. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you very much. A great pleasure to be here and be part of this uh, evening. Well, you know, we, um, we've, of, of course, are great fans of the High Tech Development Corporation, and they oftentimes come up with some interesting workshops. And when I saw this one, this was like a whole week-long workshop. So I contacted uh, Robbie Melton, and she said, oh, yeah, why don't you contact Ed and see if he can come on the show. Now, I wasn't sure if you were coming in from the mainland or you were living here, but fortunately, you are here in the studio. That's correct. I come here every year for about three months. I live in Washington, D.C., teach mm-hmm. at a university, and run a venture capital fund for, with my three sons. We're very, very experienced uh, investors in early-stage companies, and that can be people that are uh, had a lot of experience, or we work with high school kids and help them start companies, Have we have in here in, in Honolulu as well. This, this workshop, which you're talking about, is, is sponsored by HTDC, and I've been out there many times over the many times I've come here, and there is a great need for people to think how you can think positively like an entrepreneur thinks. Everyone can be an entrepreneur. Bill Gates doesn't have to be your father. You don't have to have a Rockefeller wealth behind you. Mm -hmm. And the difference is is the way you're thinking. And a good example, just to give you an example, is is cooking. We teach people as we grow up, if you want to have a goal of cooking something, you buy a recipe, then you go to the grocery store, you buy stuff, and you mix it, and you do it. That's that's the normal way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurs don't think like that. They walk into the kitchen, and they look what's there. They see what means it at their facility, to what they can use it with. And then they decide, what can I do with what's here in terms of a meal that I can prepare that would be uh, well-received? That's the only difference. And uh, so it's... Being an entrepreneur is only no more than thinking, I got a good idea. I have passion to do it. I've had some experience. It looks like an opportunity. This workshop is to take you through that process quickly on your idea so you'll come out with a better feeling about whether this is really a good idea, is it is something you can turn into a, a valuable proposition. And then we spend the last two days teaching you how to present it, p- pitching. Mm-hmm. Um, and we feel that that's, you can do that, and we have two sessions every day that they're the same, 
with it's five days, it's ninety minutes each day. We have guest speakers, and basically the bonus is on you to have an idea, and we'll walk you through that. You'll walk out of there thinking differently about how that is. So we like to feature entrepreneurial events, startup events, mm-hmm. you know, pitch contests. It sounds like that for this, you're looking for someone at any level, but certainly even at the ground level. If the prerequisite is not that you've started a business, um, but that you have an idea that could be a business. That's correct. It's something that you feel strongly about. I mean, we found out talking to high school kids, for instance, or come in and say, what's your business idea? They say, well, I don't have a business idea. What are you interested in? What do you feel passionate about? What do you want to change? And in two hours, they'll be standing up pitching for, for money for their new idea. Yeah. Now, Ed, uh, is, is entrepreneur thinking something that you can develop? Is it something that you're born with? I mean, you know, a lot of people, when they are young, they go through school, they may be taught certain things, and they get accustomed to the idea that if they read the book, maybe they'll figure out what it is that they're you know, supposed to learn. So they, it's an evolve. It's a, a developmental thinking process. It's a process of thinking, starting with what you know about yourself, what you know, feel strongly about, and want to change. Mm-hmm. That's all there is to it. Now, I'm sure there might be some fear, like some fear of actually getting involved and taking the risk, and perhaps thinking of something that might be a little bit far out there. How do you get people to overcome that that sense of, let's say? Trepidation. Well, that's what you go in the thought process. You think about an idea with them, and you walk, talk back and forth. What is this idea? Why, why do you think it's important? And they become more confident this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And secondly, we make sure that you have team efforts. We have groups. You can't do this just one-on-one very well. You have to have people talk to each other. They facilitate each other, and they gain confidence together. Well, maybe I can do this. And the point is that you've got to reach out and say, I'm going to take a chance on this. And there are a lot more and more people are doing that. There are more and more people starting companies or leaving, rather than doing that, rather than going on to a traditional job. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is interesting, young people are doing it more than uh, ever, and women particularly. There are mm-hmm. more women mm-hmm. entrepreneurs today than men. Now, another thing that would come up, I think, and certainly also a focus of our show pretty regularly, is the idea of intellectual property, the value of a patentable idea, something that you can own. So I think a lot of people who are sitting at home and they say, I've got this great idea. I want to make uh, hammocks for dogs. And But I, <laughs> if I came to this workshop and I talked about this idea, then someone's going to steal it and run with it, and they're going to they're gonna make a million dollars with hammocks for dogs. Well, what can you do to reassure someone when they come with an idea that it's that a lot of people, I think, overvalue the idea that the execution is what really matters. There's no question you've hit it on the nail. It's just not the – people will think they have intellectual property. That's something that can be discussed. But it's very, very difficult, except if you have something like you know a, a new drug or something, to protect it at that early stage. So generally, the way to protect it is, is to say – don't say a lot about it. But talk to people about, is this something you want to do? You have to get out and talk to people. And confidence builds very, very quickly in, in, in terms of this. But there is no question the, the confidence comes from doing it. We found out with, with the people we're, we're concentrating on now, we find more and more retired people, people who are veterans, uh, even people in the, that, that are disabled. We're now building uh, freight car boxes for, for disabled people to be able to do aquaponics growing of, of food mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and because it's just a matter of them getting calm. But they have to do it. You, you see people that say, well, I've never hit a, a nail with a hammer. All right, try it. 
And pretty soon they're building something with that. Now, how do you get them to overcome the possibility of, of failure? You know, the, 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 the hammock for a dog? I mean, I think that's a great idea. So I'm going to go out there. I'm going to, you know, spend maybe a couple thousand dollars, get some materials, start to get some sewing experience, maybe sort of put some, some uh, doggy hammocks together. And then, oh, wow, nobody is really that interested in it. And, that, you know, then there's this whole idea of I don't want the, the shame of failure because my idea really isn't, isn't taking, you know, taking, um, uh, getting traction in the community. So maybe I don't even want to go down that path. Well, we're, we're very fortunate in America. We don't, failure is not a bad thing for us. It's the people who go out and try something. If it doesn't work and it's an honest effort, that's, that doesn't reflect badly on you in the future. India, where I lived for many years, mm-hmm. those people had a lot of time getting people to start companies. Those people come to America, 35% of the new companies started in Silicon Valley are started, started by Indians because the culture is such that you, you can accept that. But it's the idea you try it, you learn from it, you try again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurs are not risk takers. They're very careful. And they don't, they're not going to spend a lot of money until they feel pretty sure. But the thing to do is get out and talk to the potential customers very early in this stage before you're spending money so you know that what you're building is there's going to be a, someone's going to be interested in buying it. So this great program you're putting together a whole week, um, when someone comes out of it, they're going to be ready to start their own company. I don't know whether they're ready to start their own company, but they'll feel very comfortable mm. about the, what, their, what their idea is, what it looks like is viable. They'll know how to value it in terms of being a transform into a, an opportunity, and they'll be able to have a lot of experience in how you pitch it either to strategic investors, to employees, or more importantly, to investors. So you're going to be presenting uh, as well as uh, Lisa, Lisa Beth uh, Furstenberg? Right, that's so correct. So what's the, what are you going to be doing and what is Lisa going to be doing? She is, a, she is a biotech person and there's a lot of interest in biotech here. And so we thought that we ought to have someone there that they'd be interested in, in talking to someone who's had a lot of experience. She started a biotech company. She sold it uh, for a, at a major company. She's, very, she's an expert on critical trials for, mm-hmm. for that. Then we're going to have other speakers. Uh, you know Dan Lurk's going to talk about He's going to talk with us about the ideas. The first day, people have to present their ideas, mm-hmm. and we'll have uh, Dan talk with us to them. The second day, we're going to get into the transformation, into their, how, they, how they turn this into a, a good idea, into something that can be useful. One of the people we'll have uh, on that is my son, Philip. He's, he's, he's very well known internationally. We'll work on business plans in Canvas so they can see how things are together. Oh, very good. Uh, then the third day, we'll get into the point of the starting getting into uh, f- filling that out. They'll do a canvas. Then we'll take them th- one third day. We'll f- do some financial projections to help validate the model where they have a business model after talking to Philip uh, the day before. And the last two days, we have two people who will listen to their pitches. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is a, a very high a person who's done a lot of experience in this. The second person is a high-tech person who can really tell you if this is something that's going to go in. Very good. Where can we find out more information and, and uh, sign I up think for this? The person that's all put up on uh, Eventbrite, and I think it's also now posted on HTDC uh, website. Okay, it's, fantastic. It's, 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 it's February 6th through 10th. Very good. We'll put it up on our show notes. At, at FatBiteMarksCafe.org. Yep. Very good. Well, thanks, Ed, for joining us. <laughs> and, of course, uh, next up, well, we have Mike, who is here, and he is from Ilani School. He's got another cool event coming up. It's called the Ignite Innovation 2017. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Now, we've uh, 
we've heard of Ignite, which is sort of like a kind of a quick sort of pitching program. Is that this Ignite? No, not at all. Okay. So <laughs> what is <laughs> okay, this? Okay, we clear that up. So this is uh, this is um, it's 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 a one day conference uh, led by Iolani School, and our our goal um, essentially is to um, inspire and equip K twelve educators with tools, ideas. Um, give them opportunities to network and make connections with other educators around the state. And um, uh, we do have a couple people coming in from the mainland as well, so connecting with them. Um, so, Mike, give yeah. us a little background. What do you what do you do over there at Elon? <laughs> so, I'm You're involved uh, with a lot of different sort of technology and and uh, maker spaces. Yeah, I try to stay stay involved. Um, Good. Uh, so, about ninety percent of my day uh, involves um, uh, um, ed tech integration. So, mm-hmm. I'm assisting teachers in the classroom. Um, and uh, I also teach a high school course out of our our our, our uh, makerspace, our Fab mm-hmm. Lab, called uh, Make It One Hundred and One. It's like mm-hmm. an introduction to the space for the students. Good. Yeah. So what? Um, <clears throat> this is not the first year that this uh, innovate uh, ignite innovation has been offered, right? I no. Mean, so yeah, uh, this is our, our second year actually. Okay. And yeah. then, uh, is this something that is just for Iolani teachers, or is it open to everybody? Yeah, it's it's open to everybody. So uh, public, private. Um, um, anybody who teaches, uh, essentially, um, anybody who's involved in schools, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And what is it that you're trying to convey during this this event? I mean, what is it that you're imparting on the participants? So uh, just trying to um, uh, hopefully introduce them to um, new and innovative ideas, technologies, tools um, that um, are out there, and giving uh, specifically local educators who are already diving deep into these things um, an opportunity to share some of the amazing projects that them and their students are 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 actually working on. Mm-hmm. So I know part of the curriculum, you're going to be talking about uh, design thinking, which we've covered on our show previously, and, you know, kind of project-based learning, kind of new, uh, more, uh, a more, you know, I would say modern approach to, to working with students and kind of teaching them student innovators. So what is the program effectively broken down like? Is is it, it would imagine, it sounds to me that because of the way the topics you want to teach, you would probably be be demonstrating these methods as part of the program. Yeah, of course. So uh, the way we've 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 organized the event is we have um, about eight hands-on workshops that last about an hour and a half um, that uh, give our attendees an opportunity to to really uh, dig deep and get their hands dirty in a lot of this stuff uh, to really experience it firsthand, um, not just listen to somebody talk about it. Um, but we also have a variety of forty-five minute breakout sessions that um, in, uh, include panel discussions. Uh, presentations uh, um, uh, and um, and also sort of uh, mini hands-on uh, uh, sessions as well. Mm-hmm. Now, in the short time that you are conducting this ignite innovation, which basically is over like a five-hour period, right? Yeah. I mean, it's eight to one. Yeah, eight to one. You have everything from design thinking to project-based learning. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to impart on the participant. Is it just to whet their appetite? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, you know, there are opportunities to uh, to whet their appetite. We we believe the hands-on workshops that last a little longer um, uh, give them um, uh, a a sort of deeper, um, you know, way of of learning Mm -hmm. about different tools and and technology and things like that. Well, you talk about different but, tools and technology. The event is going to be hosted at the Sullivan Center for Innovation and Leadership, yep. which is a fantastic building on the Yolani I campus. I love working in it. The Maker Fair was held there. Yep. And it is a maker space, among other things. It's a multi-level facility. Mm-hmm. There's an auditorium and such. So will the maker space components of the Sullivan Center also be incorporated into what you're imparting and yeah. sharing with yeah, these educators? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, we... We, it's it's our, our our Sullivan Center is not just a maker space. We have uh, project spaces, um, a a 
a digital media center. Our upper school library is held in there. Um, and so, you know, we're going to have um, a variety of sessions that sort of uh, give you a taste of, of a lot of the different things that, that happen in that center, but also um, uh, some things that, that happen across our campus as well. So, Mike, you mentioned tools. I mean, can you mention some tools that you might be actually uh, having some hands-on experience with? Are you going to do any sort of 3D printing? Are you going to Fly do some any drones? <laughs> yeah. Maybe some, some <laughs> digital content creation? What, you, what kind of tools are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, so we'll, um, you know, we have sessions that focus on robotics and coding, uh, 3D printing. Any VR? Um, uh, there will be a VR. I'm, I'm actually uh, uh, partnering with um, a colleague of mine, and we're going to be doing uh, sharing some VR projects that are happening at Alani School in uh-huh. that session. Um, and then um, a variety of uh, electronics, like like Makey Makeys and uh, paper circuits and things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, are, are, let's say, participants, are they going to be taking anything away with them? Are you giving them any sort of – I know, you know, at the Maker Fairs, it's always fun to – Put your create your own little. Uh, you have a little circuit board, and you create little blinky lights. I mean, are they going to be able to walk away with some of these kinds of things? Yeah, hopefully, um, uh, especially in our hands-on workshops, where we're encouraging our presenters to um, allow the attendees to, uh, you know, not only get hands-on, but to actually make something that they could take back to school with them and uh, share with their colleagues and show their students and hopefully implement it. Mm-hmm. Now, you said this is part of a series of events. I mean, I know there are other like ed tech events. I know Kamehameha Schools does one. There's a, you know there are other unconferences and ed tech events. Um, after this event, is it part of a continuum? Will there be you know follow up with the participants and 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 continuing their professional development that way? Uh, no, it, it's 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 really just a one day event, mm-hmm. and it's just a, a part of the you know all of the other things that 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 happen you know in the state. We're just uh-huh. trying to create just one more opportunity for for educators to to learn and to, and and to network and uh, take things back to the school. So, if you were to let's say uh, have a rubric for determining whether this event was successful, what that what would that rubric be? Oh man, um, I think just uh, you know hope hopefully they they come out of it excited. Mm-hmm. Um, they come out they come out of it engaged and uh, they, they learn something that. You know um, that they can take back with them on. Well, it won't be Monday because Monday will be a holiday <laughs> that weekend. But hopefully, it's something that they can take back on Tuesday. Oh, very good. So, where can people f- sign up for this? Yeah, so uh, we still have tickets available. Uh, you can go to igniteinnovation.eolani.org. Okay. Mm. Um, to find out more, we have our full schedule up there, uh, a registration, and we have information about our our keynote speaker as well. Igniteinnovation.eolani.org, yes. and of course, we will have that link on our show notes at bitemarkscafe.org. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Of course, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Philip Von D. and Kevin Schneider talk about solving data-intensive projects with supercomputing. What types of problems are best suited for these supercomputers? Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And of course, we're live in the studio. You can tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. When your parents ask you to save their company... You just do it. My parents came to this country with absolutely nothing, and they've created something here that's pretty amazing. If that's possible, maybe this is possible as well, but at the very least, it's an honorable, noble death. I'm Kai Rizdal, the CEO of Hudson Jeans, next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. Hey, pals, this is Lauren Ober, host of WAMU and NPR's The Big Listen, the broadcast about podcasts. 
Thanks to your public radio station, we'll be able to introduce you to podcasts you might not have ever heard of and give you the inside scoop on shows you already love. The Big Listen, coming to HPR One, Saturdays at 4 p.m., starting February 18th. And give a big listen to Hawaii Public Radio, won't you? Aloha. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Locations, Nohea Gallery, and Straub Clinic and Hospital. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Philip Von D. He's given us permission to save Von D. And, of course, Kevin Schneider. Philip is a assistant professor over in the physics and astronomy department over at UH. He's devoted to the development and analysis of cosmic ray detectors, especially focusing on indirect dark matter identification with the help of cosmic Ray antimatter. Kevin, meanwhile, is a graduate student in the College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources. He's studying bioinformatics, and we will later in the show have Sean Cleveland, a research scientist in the Cyber Infrastructure Group, who will be joining us by phone in uh, from Florida. And of course, uh, what is the onboarding process for the supercomputer? Of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments, and uh, that number to call is nine four one three six eight nine on Oahu or eight seven seven. Nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, thank you for having me. Hi, welcome. Now, I think my first question is, what is a supercomputer? I mean, there's a part of my head that puts supercomputer in the same category as cyberspace and information superhighway. It just sounds very 1980s, 1990s, big blinking rooms with spinning tape drives, but <laughs> that's clearly not what we're talking about here. Supercomputers are still relevant. They still are an important function. But how do you define what sets apart a supercomputer from a computer? Well, um, a supercomputer has significantly more computing power than a regular desktop computer that, or your laptop that you have at home. Um, I will give you an example. So the computations that I carry out, for example, I if you would have an individual laptop sitting on your desk, it would take this laptop 100 years to uh, get this computation done. And with the supercomputer that we have, we get it done within a couple of months. So that is strictly defining that it's that it has superpowers <laughs> with respect to what you have uh, on your desk. Uh-huh. Well, so is it a matter of just the number or the speed of CPUs? Like someone would say, hey, you know, Facebook or Apple, they have a data center that fills an entire warehouse, but a warehouse of servers that serve web pages is not a supercomputer. Is it? No, it, it is. Um, it depends on like super in what category, ah, okay. right? So if it's super in des- uh, disk space, then it might still be super. Yeah, so that might uh, be super duper, and yeah. uh, this is more super processing. <laughs> I see. So, yeah. Kevin, do you have a definition for supercomputer? Well, I mean, a uh, supercomputer has a lot of compute nodes. It's going to have a lot of memory. It's going to have a lot of disk space, so you can actually use the supercomputer mm-hmm. and do things mm-hmm. on the supercomputer. That's going to be its main... It's its main attributes. Well, you know, I, I um, in a previous century, I did work at the uh, Maui <laughs> supercomputer. And so my exposure to supercomputing super came out of the Maui High Performance Computing Center. And basically what they had was you know, this, this massively parallel processing. And the idea behind uh, the, the, the super in computing was that they could apply more processors to a project. And you know, I guess like if any, you know, if you have a bunch of processors, uh, two processors is probably going to be faster than one processor in solving 
maybe a data-intensive project. And if you have a thousand processors, it might potentially cut that into you know a thousandth thousandth of of the time to process. So, can you tell us a little bit about the project that you're actually working on that leverages this sort of supercomputing resource? Yeah, so what I'm doing is to just give you a little overview is I'm using um, data from the AMS experiment, which is on the International Space Station. It is essentially a particle physics detector Mm -hmm. that you put on the space shuttle. Um, It's much smaller than particle physics detectors that you might have seen on TV at CERN in Geneva, where they are story-high buildings, essentially. So this uh, detector is seven tons and about three or four meters high. Um, nevertheless, it was nearly as expensive as a ground-based detector. And so this detector is collecting a lot of information about the matter that is out there in space. So if you would think about an exploding star, it shoots out essentially charged particles like protons and electrons, the material that we're all made of. Um, there are other more exotic species. And by collecting these type of particles, you can study the phenomena that we have in the universe. You learn something about the sources. You learn about the um, environment in our ga- galaxy. So we're using that as a probe to learn something about where we cannot actually travel with a spaceship or with a satellite or something. Mm-hmm. So, And where I'm now using the computation power is for a specific project that takes into account the geomagnetic environment of our Earth. So, as many of you probably know, we have a magnetic environment that protects us from a lot of radiation coming in from outer space. Um, It's sometimes called a magnetic bottle, and it's serving as a uh, shield for us together with the atmosphere. And now understanding this shield, this magnetic field, is a difficult business to understand the type of particles that we collect with our detector and then to calculate back on how this geomagnetic field is modulating what we are detecting. This is a very computational mm. task and this is a f- happening as a function of time. So the magnetic field is constantly influenced by solar activity. So if the, uh, if there are any changes in the sun, you uh, experience also changes in our magnetic field on the Earth. Mm-hmm. So because charged particles leave the sun, they carry away to some degree magnetic field that then alters what we have in our vicinity. And so that's a very computational intensive problem to solve. Now, what are the data individual bits of data that the supercomputer is uniquely qualified to crunch? Are you tracking the movements of observed and specific particles, like millions or trillions of particles that were observed and collected with an instrument? Or is it more of a matter of modeling what the behavior of something like this with these characteristics would be like? I would say uh, yes to both of your questions. My uh, current focus is on the modeling to derive a model that we can use to essentially unmodulate the data that we took with the computations that we carried out on the supercomputer. So are you using results from the the data that you're analyzing to influence the model that you're creating? It goes both ways, yes. And then uh, is this, I I know, I've also heard uh, 
Veronica Bindi, I guess one of the researchers. She also is involved with some of the cosmic ray studies that. Yeah, that she's you're my about. colleague. Yes. And um, what is it that you? What was it about the supercomputer that attracted you? And how is it applied to helping you solve this problem? To give you an idea, if I want to calculate uh, the geomagnetic uh, environment for one particular moment in time, it takes about 1,000 different computations. Um, and if I can run these 1,000 computations in parallel, I will be done overnight for this one um, point in time. Mm -hmm. If I have only one processor, it takes a thousand times longer. Mm -hmm. So then mm -hmm. we're all of a sudden talking about three <laughs> years. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're a young faculty, you have to write a paper every once in a while, and you cannot write a paper every three years. <laughs> yeah, so, right. There you go. Um, so that makes it very interesting for me. All right. Now, Kevin, um, what are what's the application you are using and taxing the giant brain of the supercomputer to do? Yeah, so since I've been a junior researcher, I've been working on a maze centromere evolution. So a lot of what we do is to take DNA or RNA-seq data sets, and we run them against the reference chromosomes of uh, maize. And we use that to look at different variants and look at different... Um, so maize as in corn? As in corn? Okay. Yes, yes. And so are you? So <clears throat> is this a large data sets that you are trying to compare? So the corn genome, uh, just so you have an example, is about 2.2 gigabases. So it's about 2.2 gigabytes. And then the data sets that we work with, so one of the data sets that I work with is about 800 different inbreds that have been sequenced. And they're sequenced to 3 to 5x coverage. Mm -hmm. And so that means you have 5 times 2.2 gigabases. So you have about 10 gig in each data set. And each data set has... Uh, reads that are about 101 nucleotides long. And so you have millions of these reads. And so with a single CPU, you can align a single read to the genome. And with each additional CPU, you can at the same time <coughs> parallelize that mm -hmm. and uh, align each of those reads. So you're doing comparisons. I mean, where are these data sets coming from? Are you at or CTAR generating the data of these uh, uh, genomes, or did you go to Genome Library R Us and just <laughs> download 50 terabytes of data? So that depends on the data set that we're looking at. So the one that I just mentioned, which has about 800 um, different inbreds that have been sequenced, that's a public data set that's available on NCBI. But we also have data sets that we've produced ourselves from CENH3 ChipSeq, which is uh, CENH3 is the anti is the uh, protein that binds uh, that forms um, the chromatin at the centromere, and we have antibodies that pull that out, and that's what we've sequenced. So that's what we use to analyze the centromere of maize. All mm -hmm. right. Well, I can imagine with Phil's research, we're understanding and untangling the mysteries of the universe and how it works. Um, with, what would you say is, the, the for a, a layman, what's the practical outcome of understanding what you're learning with your information on maize? Well, I mean, our, our stuff that we're doing is very basic biology. So we are uh, understanding how the centromeres have actually evolved in maize. So we find regions that uh, um, have a single haplotype and all these different inbreds that may be very important for maize breeding. And so that's where our that's where we can apply these things in, in actual industry possibly. So what you're trying to uncover is <clears throat> is I guess uh, in terms of these you know how it Maybe what genomes are best suited for the, the, the breeding or the successful breeding of, of corn? I mean, possibly that's something that, that industry could use from this. That's not what we're doing. We're mm. just trying to understand what's, what's going on with the genome itself. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned um, the idea of, of uh, parallel 
processing or parallelizing. Uh, when you have these large data sets and when you typically think of one processor working on it, how would you typically want to parallelize, parallelize that, that, uh, that process? Well, we're lucky with um, what we're doing. We have software that has been developed that already has options to parallelize it. So when you're doing an alignment, you can tell the software that you want to have 20 different CPUs running at once. And so it'll do 20 alignments at once. Mm-hmm. And so that helps to speed everything up. And so what we can do is if there's you know 20 different nodes on the HPC, that each node has 20 different CPUs, we can split that file into 20 different files, and each one can do 20 different CPUs. And so we can have 400 different cores going at once. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I, I like the deep geekery that's happening here. So how, <laughs> how many cores are available to you? If you wanted to flip on all of the switches and use all of the resources of the HPC at UH, how, how big is that? What is that 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 capacity? So that really depends on how many people are using it unless you've purchased your own nodes yourself. I so see, you are able to purchase a node if you want to have a node that is going to be yours that you can always use, and each node has 20 cores. If it's the small memory node, the large memory node, I think, have six cores. Um, and then otherwise, if the nodes are free, you're able to use them as a, as a user of the HPC. So if there's, I think there's 100-something nodes. I'm not 100% sure. Well, um, I can, but I have I have Sean Cleveland on the line. He's one of the cyber infrastructure researchers. Uh, he's he's calling us, and he's actually joining us by phone from Florida. Sean, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Bert. Now, Sean, I think you know the the the, the natural progression of this uh, conversation has gotten to now the point where we're trying to understand the idea of paralyzed parallelizing, <laughs> not paralyzing, parallelizing your your um, let's say. Uh, code and and trying to apply the correct number of processors on a particular problem. Now, uh, Kevin was talking about twenty nodes. Phil, what were what were you using for your uh, work? How many nodes were you using? Um, so one node has about twenty different threads that you can use, and I design my programs in a way that they can only use uh, one thread at a time. So whenever a node is not completely occupied, somebody is only using 10 or 15 uh, processes on this node, I can jump in and fill up the rest of them. Ah. And so in that way, I'm working on like filling up the cluster to 100% capacity with my jobs. Mm-hmm. And for, for the type of job that I'm running, I made it up to 1,000 or 2,000 jobs that ran at the same time. So, so Sean, um, can you help us, uh, let's say, define what a node is and, and maybe how many processors are, are in a node? Sure. Um, so a node is actually um, one compute server. Um, we have um, about 178 of uh, what we call standard compute nodes that were part of the original $1.8 million um, purchase for the Cray HPC that we Cray. bought um, at mm-hmm. the end of 2014. Yeah. Um, so for those 178 nodes, there were 20 um, CPU cores. Um, so those, those CPU cores are actually spread across two um, CPU sockets. Um, and so with those initial 178 cores, they each server had about 128 gigs of RAM. So a node is actually a combination of that, that server, those um, CPU sockets that make up those 20 cores, and then the memory that's associated with them. And then that node is then networked to all the other compute nodes and then is also networked to our um, parallel file system. So 
um, that the whole the whole the whole machine, all the nodes together with the file system, um, and the network can kind of function as one large computer. Um, currently, um, with um, PIs purchasing compute nodes, we have 276 compute nodes, and that actually puts us at um, 5,876 um, cores um, for the entire um, HPC system. So. Um, if someone were to use the entire machine, they could run um, 5,876 um, threads. Now, how often does the, the usage of the machine drop to the point where someone could uh, – I, I mean, I really like how Philip designed his program so that it can use a lot of the unused parts of other, um, you know, not fully utilized nodes. But how often does it – would it you have a project that could really fire up all of the lights on the supercomputer? Um, typically, we we stay somewhere between um, between seventy and eighty five percent capacity mm. for the machine most of the time. We have um, enough enough usage that we kind of stay at that level. Um, it's possible for somebody to submit a job that can use up to twenty of those compute nodes um, without any special interference on our part. Mm. Um, we did have a user. Um, when we first set the system up and we were testing things out, run on 80, 80 compute nodes for about for about 60 days. And so he was using a significant amount of the cluster at that time. But typically we, we, we stay between 70 and 85% capacity. Now, now Sean, um, you're the, you're the, Sort of the architect uh, with the with the uh, supercomputer, and there's this idea of something called a a condo model. Can you can you help explain what a what the condo model is? Sure. So the idea um, <clears throat> behind the condo model is that um, that uh, a researcher can actually buy a piece of hardware um, in the cluster, and so the cyber infrastructure team in ITS will essentially. Um, take that compute node, put it into the cluster, and we'll manage um, the hardware and the network and all the software and everything for it. And then the, the researcher gets guaranteed access to that compute node or the compute nodes that they purchase and put in there. So whenever they want to run a compute job um, on the cluster, they get automatic access to the nodes that they bought. Um, but when they're not using those um, compute nodes, other people um, at the University of Hawaii can run jobs on those compute nodes um, until the researcher who wants it wants to run on it again. Mm-hmm. And so that way um, we're getting the maximum efficient use out of the hardware and the researcher is um, getting the benefit of being able to run on the hardware when they want, having somebody else manage it for them um, effectively and efficiently so they don't have to worry about being a system administrator. Mm-hmm. So, um, Philip, the system that you had designed for your applications that can be, you know, small enough that it can fill in unused capacity on the system, I hear things like, you know, you can purchase or own a specific node and, you know, so it can always be available to you if you need it, whereas it sounds like you've designed a program that kind of can use things when, when it becomes available. Is is your approach uh, more, I, I, it, sound like, it sounds like more economic, you know, economical to, to, to work with spare or unused um parts of, of uh, unused threads within a, a compute node, um, is it that your your application doesn't cost you as much money to run, or is it the same, or do you pay for whatever you use all the time? Um, I, w- I would say so. it depends on the job that you have in mind. Sometimes if you have a problem that just really requires a lot of parallel computing, then there is no way around it. And to some degree, I have to admit that my jobs are a bit old-fashioned, where one job is only one thread. And I have the advantage of 
being able to split it up easily into an arbitrary number of little small sub-jobs. And so that helps me to get the most out of my research. But for future projects, there might be no way around of having the requirement of running in parallel on one node on 20 threads at the same time. So that is heavily application dependent. And these days, the computing goes more and more into the direction of parallel computing to tap into that um, into that power. Um, yeah, so I was having these old school drops right. to some degree, and mm-hmm. so that helps to uh, to backfill the unused part. But in, in terms of resources or uh, allocated time or money, is your is the old fashioned approach ch- cheaper that way, or you know you you still whether you were doing it all in parallel or all broken up, um, you're still on the you're on the you're on the hook for what what uh, processing power you used. I see what you're saying. So I believe. Um, and I had discussions with Sean about that before. Maybe a combination of different types of job help to maximize the efficiency and the load of the cluster. So if you have only one type of job, then you might end up with a lot of jobs waiting for each other. And if you design a job that um, can quickly backfill, can be um, paused for a while, can then run back up again. So that that is the way I designed my jobs and so to get the maximum efficiency. So you, what you're bringing up is a, is a great sort of example of how you might want to architect the program that then leverages all these, let's say, nodes and and core processors. Uh, And I want to kind of get into a little bit more of how you thought through the architect of your program and and for both of you, uh, how you best leverage, you know, the the, the supercomputing resource. So we want to hold that thought because we want to want to tease you into you know through this promo break and then we'll we'll ask you that question when we come back but we will take a short break to continue our conversation with both Philip Von D and Kevin Schneider about the High Performance Computing Center over at the University of Hawaii as well as Sean Cleveland the research scientist in Cyber Infrastructure Group we'd of course love to hear from listeners as well if you can dive into these heady numbers you can give us a call at 9413689 or from the neighbor islands at 8779413 3689. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Aloha. This is Jeremy Hobson, co-host of Here and Now, NPR's midday news magazine show. And we are thrilled to be joining the Hawaii Public Radio lineup starting February 14th. We all know that news doesn't just happen during drive time. And on Here and Now, we're all about keeping it fresh and keeping you updated with in-depth news and important conversations. Listen for us on HPR One every weekday morning at 10, starting February 14th. In honor of Valentine's Day, entertainer Willow Chang presents an evening of songs she calls The Seven Faces of Love on Saturday, February 11th in the Atherton Studio. Their beloved tunes from Broadway, jazz, pop, and beyond. Treat yourself and a loved one to tickets by calling 955-8821 during business hours or by going to hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, Wealth Management. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Kaiser Permanente and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Philip Von D. and Kevin Schneider here in the studio about solving data-intensive problem sets. And, of course, Sean Cleveland is on the line from Florida. 
And uh, he's also a uh, cyber infrastructure researcher, giving us some insights into the actual big iron. Mm. <laughs> of course, you can give us a call here. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about um, the idea of actually developing your program to best utilize the resources at your disposal. And, and of course, Philip, you were talking about, you know, sort of this old school. And, and Kevin, are you also in this old school mode or if if there are new ways of approaching solving the problem using all these available nodes how would you go about let's say designing what your program does well i i have a mix of both of them so it depends once again what what the problem is so if something has already been developed that already does parallel processing then that's easy to use and i i do use that Mm -hmm. when it's available in terms of making my own programs, I usually do something like what um, Phil does, and I'll I'll have a single thread per per um, run, and I'll just load as many runs as I can, as long as I can split the files that it's running on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you talk about splitting the files, then you have to you have to take that large file and actually segment it out in in terms of let's say dividing it up by a thousand. Well, that depends on once again what you're doing. So if I have eight hundred different uh, data sets from different inbreds, like mm-hmm. one of the things I was talking about, mm-hmm. that's 800 different runs that I can do. So I don't actually have to split each one up. I can I can have each run one run individually. And would that be considered a thread? Uh, so thread? so with that, with that software, I, each run I can run with 20 threads. Mm-hmm. So each run I can run on a node. Mm-hmm. And that's how I would usually do that. Now, now <clears throat> Phil, you were talking about sort of this old school. And so how would you contrast what you considered old school versus what is new school? Well, a few years back, probably not too many years back, maybe five to ten years back, you had only one thread running on your computer, essentially, so you had only one core. You obviously always had multiple threads, so multiple programs running at the same time Mm -hmm. means you have different threads running. Mm -hmm. But you had only one core effectively working on all of these different things at the same time. And so you would design a program that would just run one thing, essentially, from top to bottom, like right Imagine writing a letter, you start with line one, and then it goes to line two, and three, and four, and so on. But now these days, you can essentially design a program that it halts to some degree, and then splits up the job internally within the program, and then splits it up onto the different threads. And many modern laptops that you have have already four threads available, eight threads available. Quad core. Quad core. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so that makes it much more efficient if you know what you're doing. If mm-hmm. you're running a single thread program on your, I don't know, quadruple core computer, it's not going to be any faster. But that is the direction that supercomputing takes, massive parallel computing rather than having that one super thread. So you, you said something important, if you know what you're doing. So what <laughs> is it that you both came into this environment knowing what you can do? Is it something that, as a, as a researcher, you already had the background, the computer science background that allowed you to you know, sort of better understand the architect of your programming uh, versus, let's say, somebody that's coming in with maybe just a, a biology degree. Well, there's nothing wrong with a biology degree, but I mean, you know, if you're coming in with a biology degree, are you still needing to have some onboarding in order to use this resource? 
I think uh, whether you come with a computer science degree or a biology degree, you still have to go through onboarding to use this resource. You still have to make sure that you're using it properly and that you're not um, using it. Yeah, I mean, you're not using it incorrectly and that you're not hugging the resources and that you're not, um, you know, doing things wrong. Right. I can see I can imagine someone coming in interested in agriculture, working on corn and you know, working on different variants and something and things like that, and then you say, "Well, let's apply supercomputing to this problem." But if you didn't have uh, ICS courses when you were coming up through your biology mm-hmm, program, mm-hmm. I, I I can't even imagine how how you. I mean, how did you learn to use this high performance computer in your research? Well, for me, it's a little unfair. I do have a computer science uh, degree ah. and a bioinformatics degree. So I have a lot of background in this, but uh, a lot of people that come into it don't necessarily. My my professor, Gernot Presting, he uh, uses the HPC in his bioinformatics class, and he'll have the students go through the onboarding so they can use it. And I mean, it's it's a start. It's it's a place to start for them. You know, uh, we're we're talking to uh, Philip Von D and uh, Kevin Schneider about uh, supercomputing, and lo and behold, we have a call from the Maui supercomputer. So I would love to uh, bring Kenneth on to the show. And uh, uh, Kenneth, welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, hi. So I used to work for uh, MHPCC back in the old days when Bert was also there. <laughs> yes, those were the prehistoric <laughs> that was like a, That was another century ago. I know, last <laughs> century. Uh, um, but uh, I, I just... I'm working for a different supercomputer center now, uh, one that's sponsored by National Science Foundation. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention that for uh, U.S. National Science Foundation funded researchers, there's a program where um, they can get free computer time in the millions of hours um, from supercomputer centers in uh, San Diego, Austin, Texas, Illinois, Oak Ridge, or a bunch of other places. So that's um, also an option if you have very large Jobs. Well, very good. Thanks, uh, thanks, Kenneth, for passing on that information. And you know, in fact, that's a great segue into something I want to ask Sean. And so, Sean, we have the we have the uh, supercomputer here at the UH Manoa campus. Uh, but I think there are some capabilities that you're building into the the um, let's say ability for researchers to not only use the computer here, but also to access compute time from other resources as well. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> We're currently working um, with the uh, uh, Texas Advanced um, Compute Center on a project that is called uh, the Agave Platform. <clears throat> and essentially what that is is um, the Agave Platform, they call it um, Science as a Service, which essentially uh, means that the folks that... Um, TAC, the Texas Advanced Computing Center, have essentially created um, a bunch of um, programmatic APIs that we can access to um, <clears throat> uh, leverage um, a number of external comp- computational and storage resources, um, such as um, some of the National Sci- um, Science Foundation's um, supercomputing machines um, like in Texas, like Stampede or um, or the Comet Supercomputer or some of the other Exceed resources, as well as um, the Open Science Grid, which is a large um, high-throughput um, computing resource that is a consortium of institutions essentially um, donating a bunch of their 
compute cycles to um, <clears throat> this open science grid uh, system. So this Agave API system essentially allows us to um, design um, software applications on the web that we can connect our University of Hawaii users to those um, execution systems, as well as install some software applications um, and hook up some of our, our own HPC system to this as well, and as some of some of their different pieces of storage components, so that they can have a central place essentially to do um, computation. So they can have their their storage in one, in <clears throat> within one application, and then all the different computational um, resources that they could run things on in the same place. So, and, um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it makes me think of, you know, for in developer parlance, a lot of people use something called Amazon Web Services, and it's scalable, and you develop a program, but it lives in this giant cloud, and it can expand or contract based on its needs at a given time. So it sounds like what you're describing is like a supercomputer equivalent of a interconnected cloud, so I could use the UH resources, but it could also, uh, through extension, tap into maybe storage in Texas, processing power on an NSA system, all transparently? Um, essentially, yes. So we um, are able to develop applications that can yeah, leverage this platform so that um, to, to the researchers, it's essentially transparent. They essentially just click the boxes and say, yeah, I want that storage um, that's located in Texas, and I want to run the computation at UH, or I want to run the computation in um, San Diego, or wherever the wherever the app, the um, different systems they have right. access to are. So if we register those systems with the software, um, they'll be able to to run jobs on those systems with data from wherever they have access to it, and transfer the data to some other place. So um, it's trying to uh, remove some of the um, manual overhead of a lot of the things that people have to do in the command line. Um, mm -hmm and do some of these things over and over, as well as create um, an environment in which we can do reproducible science. So whenever somebody runs within this system, um, we essentially track uh, what's the application code that they ran on, what are the inputs that they fed into the application, what system did it run on, and then what are all the um, uh, outputs that came out of it. And so we can track all that stuff so that someone later could reproduce the same run. Mm -hmm. that, that's great, Sean. So stay stay on the line because I want to. Um, I, I also want to uh, bring another caller in, Judy from California, who uh, has some a few questions. And of course, I uh, want to welcome Judy to Bite Marks Cafe. Hey, Bert. Hey, Ryan. Hey, guests. I was uh, curious to know. This is a little bit over my head, and I was curious to know what kind of math is is are you running on these, or what kind of programming languages? What? How do you talk to these massive things? You know, I understand about. Millions of data points, but then what do you do with it? That's a fair question. Good, good to hear good, from Judy. you, Judy. Well, so maybe I will pass that to Kevin or Philip. Uh, what are you actually? What programming language are you actually using for your applications? Well, a lot of what I do uh, after I get data, I I write Perl scripts to actually parse the data and and make something usable that I can like load into Excel and make a, a graph from mm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. Usually, Perl, classic, Philip. Yeah, so Judy, if you think about um, your Mac laptop that you might have at home, so then you essentially have already the tools at hand that you could use to log into this uh, fancier machine. So you may or may not have seen a terminal popping up that looks like you're doing real computer science like hackers in the movie. So <laughs> um, it's all on the command line then, and so you 
lock into these machines, and instead of working on your own device, now all of a sudden you have some supercomputer at your hand, and you can browse through the file system, and you can run all sorts of programs. It most of the time will not have a graphical user sure, interface, sure. but you have some sort of program that runs in the background and then produces outputs in terms of a nice-looking plot or a 3D model or a video or whatever. So is it like a Linux system we're talking about here? You know, what? Yes. Yes. It's okay. a Linux system, yes. And are, are, Philip, are you running uh, Fortran programs or what, what are you running? So the language that I'm personally using is C++, mm-hmm. but it's not a matter of the language. So every language that you can use on a Linux system can be used on the supercomputer. That probably goes from basic over Fortran to Java to whatever uh, uh, you like to program in. Um, Python very popular these days. So there is no strict limitation that you have to learn a new language for programming the system. So you have to bring in some knowledge about how to run a computer maybe more professionally than just watching YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. But um, then it's more or less the same. So what is nice on the supercomputer is that they have a lot of what they call modules already loaded that you can actually just load yourself. So if you want to... Uh, run a program and you don't want to install it and it's already it's already available then you can just load that module and then you have access to the program that includes some of the programming languages so so that way you can uh, uh, you can compile those those different uh, programs that you may write and then if there is something that is not there that you want to install you can either install it yourself on your user or you can talk to the HPC people on how and they to have install a recommendation. so Very good. before we go Sean if somebody wanted to look online and learn more about this uh, high performance supercomputer at the University of Hawaii where can they go do you know um, if they go to the um, the cyber infrastructure website, um, hawaii.edu slash um, ITS slash CI, um, we have information on the website about um, the UHHPC. Fantastic. And, of course, uh, Sean, if anybody wants to get kind of onboard experience with the supercomputer, they're actually going to be talking directly with you, right? Um, they'll be talking with me or they'll be talking with uh, Ron Merrill or David Schonsenbach. Yeah, very Fantastic. good. Well, of course uh, – Philip Von D is the is over at the uh, physics and astronomy astronomy department. And of course, uh, Kevin Schneider is with the College of Tropical Ag and Human Resources. And Sean Cleveland, who joins us by phone, is with the Cyber Infrastructure Group uh, in ITS. And we want to thank you all for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Thank you, and thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week, and we're going to talk about the Accelerate UH Accelerator Program and two companies in the agriculture space. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. You can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich. And, of course, Hawaii Public Radio is preparing to unveil some great new changes to deliver more of what you love beginning on Valentine's Day, February 14th. Of course, BiteMarks Cafe will be joining its fellow news and talk shows on HPR 1. That's 88.1 on February 15th and of course it's going to it's new time is going to be 6:30 on Wednesday nights along with our new half hour format Bite Marks Cafe will also be rebroadcast each week on Sundays at 10:30 a.m. You can check out all the new times for this and all other HBR programs at hawaiipublicradio.org and to get the very latest you can sign up for station emails while you're there. And of course uh, see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.